Hello everyone. Welcome to episode 58 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Climbing a ladder to a roof or a window with your self-respect is better than climbing the corporate ladder with your tail between your legs. Your self-respect is the foundation of your relationship with yourself and others. And sometimes you need to make a statement or act based on principle, regardless of whether the individual, people, or organization will take notice, feel its impact, or even care. The fire service doesn't belong to any of us, and we all have to make compromises in our careers, but we can hold on to who we are and find our belonging within it. You can't be content and put your all into what you're passionate about when you know you're selling yourself out. Or as Moira Fowley Doyle wrote so eloquently in her book Spellbook of the Lost and Found, do no harm but take no shit. My guest this episode has trusted his moral compass and followed his passion in his personal life and professional career, helping others and showing them the respect that he holds for himself. Here's my chat with Phil Resendez. All right, well, why don't you kick things off by telling me where you grew up and a little bit about your family. I was born in Leamington, Ontario. My family's from Wheatley, actually, and I spent a first couple of years of my life there, and then my mom and dad separated, and we ended up moving away to Ajax pretty early in my life, and I spent uh, the better part of my education, public school, high school years there. I didn't really have a lot of connection with my father. We moved away. I'd see him maybe a couple of times a year. My mom uh, ended up remarrying to a wonderful guy. He was a great stepfather. Well, you said he was encouraging you quite a bit to uh, pursue what you wanted and set your mindset. He was very into sports. So naturally, I guess I kind of gravitated to that. We watched a lot of hockey like early on as, as a little guy. And something that I really took to early on in life was riding bicycles. So I actually was able to ride a two-wheel bike at two years old. My stepdad noticed very early on that I wasn't really relying on the training wheels much. So he's like, let's take these things off and, and see how he does. And I kind of took off with it. And where we were living in Ajax at the time, it was near the, the Ajax Community Center, and there was a BMX track there. So we'd go over and watch these races on weekends and stuff, and I was three and four years old, and I, I just was thrilled with it. My stepdad there, he actually enrolled me into some open races when I was four. It really spiraled into this 10-year kind of venture. My parents got really involved with the, the track, I guess there was at a point they were struggling for management and people to run the the events and things like that. So my mom actually stepped up and took on the role of the president of the Ajax BMX club. So my stepdad was involved with the maintenance of the track and it really kind of became like a lifestyle for me early on. Traveled all over North America, kind of chasing the BMX tour. It was just something that kind of took a liking to the biking and my stepdad got me involved with it. I guess while I was doing the BMX thing too, like in parts of the off season, he was really big on getting me involved with with other things as well that would maybe help develop a mindset or a skill set or a discipline. So I can remember being very young, getting involved with Taekwondo and karate. Did that for a number of years. It wasn't something that I really stuck with as I got into my teenage years and things like that. But earlier on, I was disciplined enough to go to Taekwondo a couple times a week and I did a little karate as well. The things that I kind of took away from that that really helped me with the BMX was the focus and that discipline aspect and kind of overcoming challenges. Doing a lot of traveling with it, you'd go to a lot of these tracks and you'd be up against a lot of these other riders that you didn't race them a lot. So you, you'd have different challenges that way. So you'd show up and these, some of these guys would be much bigger, a little stronger, maybe a little more developed in, in the sense of just physically. And it was a challenge. It was a really cool experience early on in life for sure. So was it dirt or was it like a smooth surface? So it's basically just like motocross. 
dirt course, just like a motocross track with jumps and moguls and, and that kind of thing. There was a starting gate that would hold you in position. You had to balance your bike. And then the starter had the three lights with the buzzer and it would count you down. And then the gate would drop and you'd come down this paved ramp basically into the dirt course. And it's basically just one lap, right? So it's like one circuit and then there's a finish line. The smooth course is, that's in the Olympics now, is it not? It is, yeah. Yeah, actually. The courses look crazy. It's basically the exact same thing, Scott, that I was doing way early on in the 80s. With a lot more coasting. (laughs) Yeah. Momentum. Yeah, absolutely. And you got involved with other sports as well, like skateboarding, snowboarding, you played some hockey and golf. While I was doing the BMX thing, I obviously would do a little skateboarding with my friends, snowboarding in the wintertime. The extreme sports thing really kind of stuck with me, and, and it was something that I really enjoyed to do. And even that kind of translated on later on in life with some jobs that I had that kind of went with those types of passions too. So after the BMX thing ended, so there was like in Ontario, the sport kind of fizzled away kind of late 80s. So I think I was around like 14 years old. The sport really fizzled away. A lot of the tracks were closing. The memberships were down. And at that time, I was starting to get kind of heavy into hockey. So it was kind of a transition. We went from the BMX thing to playing hockey. Started out playing house league hockey for, I think, two years or so. It kind of transitioned again, like just wanting more out of it. And my stepdad got me into some tryouts for like B. And we went out I made the team the first year I played, played B hockey. And then naturally the next couple of years, it was like, let's try out for the A team. And then it transitioned into AAA as I got a little bit older, which I mean, a lot of travel involved and big commitment. So, but my stepdad was just super instrumental in kind of getting me involved in these things and keeping me busy. And his big thing was keep me off the streets, keep me busy, keep me involved with the team aspect of things. And There's so many great things I learned from that. Like I can look at it now and look back and say like, these are some amazing qualities that I've gained from having all those experiences. What about experiencing any injuries? That's a long athletic career starting at four. I had several. (laughs) It's funny you ask that because my biology class in high school, one of our projects was our teacher at the time had said, if anybody's got any x-rays, of any injuries that you've maybe had, <laughs> can you go to the hospital and sign your x-rays out and bring them into class? For right away, I was just like, oh, I, I've got a huge folder. I'm going to go <laughs> and, and, and see if I can get this x-ray thing. So I went to the hospital and they let me sign it out and I brought it into class and the teacher started going through it. And he's like, well, I think we've got every body part here. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely had a lot of injuries, anything from broken legs, broke my leg BMXing, broke a couple, both my wrists dislocated shoulders that kind of happened in hockey I ended up having surgery on my on my right shoulder at, at the age 16 just multiple dislocations it just didn't it just didn't seem to want to stay in every time I'd get busy doing stuff so had orthoscopic surgery and it did wonders actually it really helped it and golf really stuck with you I didn't get involved with golf until I started playing hockey so probably around 14 15 years old but it was the the one sport that I just absolutely loved to do it challenged me probably the most out of any. And naturally, I sucked really bad at first. But my stepdad was really wanting to get into golf too at the time. So we both went out and struggled and lost a million golf balls. And we'd play together, which was amazing. It was the first time that I really got to do sport with my stepdad. It was a really cool time. And I just loved the weekends when he was off work and we could schedule a tea time. We'd go and play a couple local courses quite often, like in Pickering and, and things like that. 
it was the one sport I think that really challenged me and it still does today. Like I've been playing it for 30 years now and, and it just, it's, it's the one that stuck with me the most for sure. Your mom and your stepdad were strong guides and mentors to you and obviously coaches in all your sports as well. You mentioned your grandfather was a strong presence for you. My mom's dad. So my grandfather, Tom, he spent a ton of time with him in the summer. So he lived in Wheatley. We were in Ajax. So my, my real dad lived in, in Wheatley as well. About eight years after I was born, my dad remarried and he had another son. I have a half brother as well. And they're in the Wheatley area. So every summer I'd go down to Wheatley, spend some time with my grandparents, have a chance to visit my dad a little bit and kind of get to know my brother. But my grandfather, he was very much into the outdoors. He was a member of Ducks Unlimited. He liked hunting. We spent a ton of time just like riding bikes outside and going and walking the bush lot that was at the back of the property. At the time as a kid, I didn't really, I guess I didn't really appreciate it. But I look back now and I think about how awesome it was. He would always take the time to point out species of birds. And he taught me about tree identification, like the types of barks and the types of trees that there are. It's funny because I've kind of taken to passing that on to my kids now. So I've, uh, I've bought a property out in the country and we've been planting a lot of trees over the years. And it's something that my grandfather was really into and it kind of inspired me. But he was just a, a wonderful man. I learned so much about good character and how to present yourself and how to be with others and how to treat others really at the end of the day. There's just so many values that that I picked up from him. And way back then, I just really didn't have a clue. I just knew I enjoyed spending time with him. He was a huge humanitarian. He did a lot of work in the community. Something that, that will always stick with me. His funeral, it, it will always stick with me because it was three days visitation. So we would go with the family and all these members of the community and a lot of our friends and family would come and they'd say their condolences and pay their respects and stuff. But like three days, I've never, I've never witnessed it before like that. And I can just remember going outside to get some fresh air and the lineup at the funeral home in, in, in Leamington was down the street. And it just really stuck with me to this day. Like it's actually giving me goosebumps just talking about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, same. It just hit me so hard that he was just such a special man and he really impacted so many people. He did a lot of things in the community for people in need and it was he's just a he was a wonderful man. That's so amazing. And you had an unsuspecting mentor and a manager when you worked at TELUS. After my college years, I ended up getting a job at TELUS Communications. I was working in the mall actually at West 49. And that's kind of where that passion with the skateboarding, snowboarding stuff tied in. So while I was in college, it was just like a little retail job to kind of pay the bills while I was doing the school thing. And I met a guy that was working at TELUS and he said to me, he goes, I don't know what you're making at West 49, but the retail gig selling cell phones is, is a big thing. Like, like we're doing really, really well down here. You should give it a try. I thought about it and I ended up applying and getting on part time. And it was right around that era where like the cell phones, there was the flip phones with the black screen and then the camera phone started to come out. So it was like, it was a really easy sell as well. So I ended up getting involved with the, the sales aspect of TELUS, doing the phones and a little bit of my computer programming tied into that as well, like my schooling because the mic network and we were doing multi-phone deals to trucking companies and things like that. So there was some programming involved with that. I ended up just starting out as a part-time sales rep working out of a kiosk in Lansdowne Mall in Peterborough. And I had a couple of managers. I was doing really well. Like the sales numbers were great. I ended up making the gold star club, they called it. They would throw this big annual gala, like corporate TELUS. 
and they would invite all their top sales reps down to this big event toronto they'd do this big special dinner and an award ceremony they'd set you up at the the royal york hotel well my manager at the time she was wonderful she kept telling me she's like you really could have a career at this and she really kind of showed me some of the things that i didn't really realize i had like kind of a natural ability to just with people like just having conversations and i think that's why i did so well at sales was i didn't really push people to buy things it was more i just wanted to kind of get to know them and ask them questions and think people felt comfortable and she saw that and she also saw that there was times where i'd help other team members as well like just with their sales abilities right like things that they could ask customers and things like that she kind of opened up my eyes to like these natural leadership qualities that i didn't even realize i had a couple years later down the road i went from part-time to full-time sales and then became an assistant manager at that kiosk in in the mall telus was doing so well in peterborough they actually opened up a second store so that store was a storefront location, kind of like a box store. And she asked me if I was interested in going over there to to run the store. And that led me into like coaching and mentoring and recruiting and hiring staff. And it was a pretty amazing thing. And I really give her most of the credit because I really would have never thought or seen myself going into to something like that. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of jobs where on the surface you wouldn't think there's much to it, but it really is about who you're around and what you can pull from it. Yeah, 100%. Ultimately, I didn't see myself as like a cell phone sales guy for the rest of my life, even early on. It was just kind of a means to get by until I could find something that I was more passionate about, so to speak, right? But at least while you're there, you're focused on at least doing a good job, doing what you're doing in the moment. You mentioned college and computer programming, and maybe just back me up and how was school for you all the way through? Early on, like public school, high school, like early years of public school is obviously fun, but I was very bored with school. I was a very energetic fella and I just, I just didn't do well with sitting at a desk and having to be quiet and having to follow along, so to speak, right? I wanted to be busy. And I think that was the big thing. And I even see it in my oldest daughter now. She's very similar. She's a go-getter, a busybody, and she kind of has the same qualities. And I can see how I kind of struggled. What other jobs did you have before the fire service? Obviously, you were a TELUS, but you started working early and you went through quite a few places, eh? I started working really early. My first job was a paper route. It started out kind of small. It was the Toronto Sun. It started out just a couple of streets in my neighborhood in Ajax. I started picking up additional routes, which led me to having my mom. We used to have a 1984 Chevette hatchback. We'd throw the hatch up on it and I'd be loading the trunk with papers and off we'd go. Definitely working hard and making some money motivated me early on. That was the paper route. And then from there, I kind of went to, in my high school years, I being a golfer, I got on a grounds crew doing like summer maintenance at the golf course. So raking bunkers and changing out the trash cans. And eventually that led into doing some greens cutting and some fairway mowing and things like that. And at that time, I was actually working two jobs. I was working nights, doing night shifts in retail, working at Zeller's in the electronics department. I really enjoyed being out there and kind of making a living. And a lot of other sort of outside blue collar work, some landscaping. And you mentioned being a farmhand and lumberjack. Yeah. Like I was a little older. I was probably in my early twenties when I did the farmhand stuff, but I ended up working on a farm in Campbellford, Ontario doing like hay. And then there was a bush law. We did a lot of clear cutting and like lumberjacking for firewood. And so I got a lot of early on experience running chainsaws and 
just the safety aspect of working around trees and felling trees and sharpening chains. And, and I actually really enjoyed that type of work. And that might have been related to kind of the love of trees that I didn't really realize I had just from my grandfather. And a couple of factory jobs? So my stepdad actually worked at Atlantic Packaging in Scarborough. So when we were living in Ajax, he'd commute to Scarborough every day for work and they would hire college students for summer work. So it was a corrugated cardboard factory. It was tough work and it was shift work too. So it was three shifts, there was days, nights and afternoons. I realized very quickly that that was not where I wanted to be or where I wanted to end up as a sort of a job or a career. Did you have that sense with each of the jobs? Like you have a similar sort of path to me. And I always found I'd start a new job and I'd always be super excited and interested for the first few weeks or months learning it. And then I'd learn it and then I get bored. That's probably exactly how to explain it. Yeah. I, I was always very eager off the hop, like you said, and yeah, it would kind of fizzle out. I just always wanted another challenge. I think at the end of the day, it was more about mentally, physically. I just wanted, I just wanted to do different things. Yeah, I think that's why fire is the only thing that's kept my interest the entire time. <laughs> I would have to completely agree. Like I can't see myself doing anything else at this point. And it's like, there's so many different facets to the fire service. I just want to eat it all up and just read about it and study it and learn it. And I think that's what's kept me going in the fire service for sure. Yeah. It's like this combination of fun and frustration because you can't master it. You just can't, <laughs> everything, you get a handle on something, you've neglected a bunch of other stuff and you got to start over. So, and it's like, there's just so much material. If you're bored, it's your own fault. Yeah. A hundred percent. What was your first exposure to the fire service then? So you're doing all these other jobs. How did that even come down the pipe for you? really early on. So my grandfather that we spoke about, he was actually a volunteer firefighter. It was more of a help in the community. It's a farming community too. So it's a lot of farmers that had jobs that just, they were doing it as a, somebody needs to do it and we're going to do it because it's going to help our neighbors. It's going to help our community. And I can always remember him kind of saying that too, right? But I do recall some Christmas get togethers at the fire hall early on in my young years. I was always fascinated by the trucks and things. And I sometimes wonder if I would have grown up in Wheatley, in kind of that hometown where my family's from, would I have been exposed or or maybe interested much sooner in life? So I actually didn't find the fire service until I was about 26 years old. And it was just when I kind of moved back this way. And it was the assistance of my brother. So my, my half brother, he's eight years younger than I am. He was a Wheatley firefighter. And he had gotten on after my grandfather had retired. So my grandfather had done 35 years. He had retired and he had passed away and my brother had gotten on the fire department. When I moved back that way, I kind of call it like I had a, like a little bit of a midlife crisis working for TELUS. I'd been there for almost 10 years. I just really came to that point where it was like, I just didn't see doing that job for the rest of my years. It just dawned on me one time at Christmas and I'd been getting closer to my dad and my brother. As my brother got older, he'd come down and visit me when I was living in Peterborough and we'd go golfing and I really started to get to know him as he got older and we started spending more time. So I moved home during this midlife crisis thinking, I need to make a change. I'm, I'm either going to go back to school or I got to figure it out. So I ended up moving back to Wheatley area and moved into my grandma's basement and my grandma was willing to give me a hand, help me out. And she's like, if you want to go to university or whatever you want to do, I'm here to help you out. And whatever it is, you go and do that. So I ended up calling my manager just after New Year's and telling her that I was going to make this move and that I was going to resign from my position. And I think she thought I maybe had lost it. And she said, well, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give you a couple of weeks to think about this, Phil. Like, why don't you 
do what you have to do, take care of some things and give me a call back and we can talk this through. And I had already made up my mind. I was kind of dead set on doing this, packed up everything, moved back to Wheatley. And after about a week of being there, getting situated, I called my boss and let her know that I was planning on making this change. And she actually said to me, she goes, I actually reached out to one of the area managers in the Windsor area and there's a job at the Devonshire Mall if you're interested. At the time, I, I really didn't seem interested, but I said, you know what, for now, I, I'll take it. We'll go from there. So I ended up taking it and working full-time at Devonshire Mall, doing the sales thing again, just as a, as a sales rep. So outside of the management again, and just back on the floor selling cell phones to customers. So I did that for a little bit. And then my brother invites me over to the Wheatley Fire Hall. And it was during a practice night. The guys were just absolutely welcoming, wonderful. We actually went down to the Wheatley Harbor. We took the trucks down and they let me ride in the trucks. Huge grin on my face thinking, man, this is really cool. And at the time I knew nothing about it, but we actually did a little drafting. So pulling water out of the harbor and we were flowing some hand lines and things like that and just kind of resonated with me. And I'm like, this is really cool. So my little brother says, we're looking for some volunteer firefighters. You're living in Wheatley now. Why don't you put your resume in? So I did, and I got a spot. And that was kind of the first step to me getting involved even more. And it wasn't long. It was like within a month or two, I was like, I want to do this. I want to make a career of it. This is exactly where I see myself going. My brother at the time had enrolled in St. Clair College pre-service fire program. And it was a night school program at the time. It was out of Windsor there four nights a week and then every other weekend would be our practical days so it was it was pretty cool how it worked because it was like kingsville leamington there was a whole bunch of little local fire departments that were involved with it so we got to go and use our equipment on the weekends and we do all our our training and certifications through through these departments i ended up applying while they put me on a waiting list and it came down to a couple of spots being open and I actually had to test an interview to get the college spot so I went in and and met with uh, the coordinator of the program and I had to write a little aptitude test and they kind of interviewed me as to like what my interest in the fire service was and things like that and I lucked out and got a spot so I actually went to fire school with my younger brother which was a pretty cool experience it was an 18-month program we went through the program together and we both got certified and we started applying at the same time and how was applying and testing around the GTA Right away, I thought, well, if I'm going to be a firefighter, I'd be awesome to go to the big city, right? It'd be fantastic to get into one of these bigger departments with tons of members and all this state-of-the-art equipment and all that. That's the, That was my mindset then, right? So my brother and I applied to Hamilton. We applied to Vaughn. We applied to Kitchener, Guelph, Waterloo, Toronto. There was quite a few, actually. And we'd gone down and done some testing. So we were writing the Gladhill Shaw test at the time. So the CPS and the OS. The physical test was York or Brock, depending on where we were applying. So it was actually pretty challenging. The first few I wrote, I didn't do well. It was a big eye opener. Getting out there and doing these Gledhill shot tests and stuff, it was it was challenging. I, I have to admit, like the first three or four, I definitely didn't do well. Didn't get a passing score. And you obviously know that there's a cost to it. And then the fact that you're having to take time off work to go down and write these tests through the week and find time in your life to be able to do it. It was definitely a trying time, so to speak, for sure. What finally clicked for you? I actually passed Hamilton's test. And I think it was about three or four weeks later, Chatham Kennett posted a full-time recruitment. 
So Chatham-Kent's got a 19 fire stations. So I was already a Chatham-Kent volunteer, Station 20 Wheatley. So that was kind of an advantage, I think, at the time. And I think it still is. Like our department definitely, uh, I wouldn't say they take precedent on hiring volunteers first, but it gives you some bonus points on that matrix scoring. So Chatham-Kent put out a full-time recruitment and I applied to it. My brother applied to it. Part of the, the recruitment was to write the Glad Hill Shaw tests. And they had put in the, the criteria, the description of how to apply and what the testing was about, that if you had written any of these tests within the last six months, we could contact Glad Hill Shaw and get, I think it was a red copy or something it was called. And I think it cost like 35 bucks to do it or something. So I contacted Glad Hill. I had a pretty good test score with Hamilton. I hadn't heard from Hamilton yet. I got that test score sent to Chatham-Kent admin, to the chief at the time, and I never even had to write for Chatham-Kent. So I got myself an interview with Chatham-Kent, and I was hired in 2011. And what was the recruit experience like? The recruit experience was like knowing what I know now. It wasn't glorious. Basically, I got hired, I got a start date, had to do your physical and health testing and things like that, and then you get your start date and you come into the, the fire department. So I came in on sh- on shift, basically. So we had four platoons at the time. We didn't work 24-hour schedule in Chatham. So it was the 10s and 14s, and we did one 24-hour Sunday a month. So the first four weeks, I actually worked straight days. And they did that so that we'd rotate and get to see all four platoons. So I came in and worked Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, day shifts. And I was put right on the rigs with the crew. So I was kind of like an extra body. There really wasn't a whole lot of training, like nothing formal. Um, There was some stuff with the crews, like depending on the the members on the crews, they might take you out and throw some ladders or there really wasn't a big emphasis on like a recruit training class. It was you're on the rigs. And as soon as the tones went off, we went to the medical call or to the, the structure fire or whatever it was. I didn't have any fires in the first four weeks, but we did a lot of medical calls back then. And it was a thrill. Like I can remember the first call coming in early morning on that first day and we're buzzing down the street and the air horns are going and it just smile just never came off the face for weeks. It was incredible. It was such a cool feeling to have made it and to know that this is the full-time career job I'd worked really hard to get. Probably took me about three years in total between the schooling, being on the Wheatley Volunteers, and then actually having a chance to be in that backseat of that fire engine. It's funny when you said, knowing what you know now, I've had a similar, a number of times through my career, I'm looking back and going, man, like just everyone had the best of intention, but the more you dive in and learn, you realize what you weren't given and how you may have got lucky on a lot of calls. If you would have known better, there's just a lot of ignorance and luck attached to it. Yeah, for sure. Our department has definitely come a long way and seeing how things are going today, it's a huge improvement in terms of what our new recruits are getting right out of the gate. It might not be that eight to 10 week program like some of the bigger cities. We don't have that luxury in, in a small department like uh, Chatham. So they're coming in and they're getting two weeks It's varied a couple of times over the last few recruit classes, but two weeks is a pretty good set point where they're not riding on the rigs, running active calls right off the hop. They're getting a good foundation of operations. There's been some amazing improvements in the department just in terms of like even how we deploy our equipment and the type of equipment we have and things like that. It's been pretty awesome to see. It's cool to be a part of growth and change. 
Yeah, everyone is growing and improving, and there's a lot of variables at stake, and it's not fair to say, well, here's the perfect recruit program, and this is what everybody should be doing, because it doesn't always work that way. And I don't think anyone's got a recruit program down to a science yet anyways, so it's just interesting to always hear what other departments are doing and how they're approaching it and what their variables are. I've really enjoyed the recruit classes too, because they they really get the on-duty crews to help out. I've always been very inspired by these these young recruits coming in. I just there's just so much energy there. I've always been very moved by that. I want to be involved with them, and it's something that the department's been very good about getting the crews involved and kind of utilizing certain members on certain crews to help with certain things. And obviously a passion of mine is forcible entry. I can give thanks to Andrew Broussard for that. I took a class early on in my career and a legend he is, right? And it's been pretty cool to have kind of a relationship with him over the last 10 or 11 years and just being able to shoot him a text or a call. And he's just an amazing mentor. Yeah, I definitely want to get into how you got into instructing and how that sort of started out. You mentioned about being around recruits. I think it just lets you extend that feeling you had in your first few weeks, right? You get to live in it all the time and and not let it go. Keeps it fresh. And how were your rookie years? My rookie years were okay. I was very fortunate in the first few years to to catch a lot of jobs. So I'd say my first two or three years, I, I went to quite a few fires and some commercial fires, some residential fires. I learned a lot. Absolutely learned a lot. Like those experiences, they stuck with me from day one. These are things that I like to talk about with the young people coming onto the job. And we talk about these past fires and just some of the lessons we learn from them and even just how we deploy our equipment or the hose line that we select for certain fires and why we do it and how I would have done it differently back then. Now, like knowing what I know now, right? It was an interesting first couple of years for sure. Two stations in Chatham and then one in Wallsburg that's full time. So being a small department and the staff, the way it is, we rotate a lot. We're not designated to a, a certain station for the entire year. So you spend some time at station one, two, and three, which number three is out in Wallsburg. It's a different little community there. And it's an interesting uh, dynamic, the department that way. So it's it's pretty cool. Right away, you're within the first year or two, you're driving an apparatus and you're on the aerial. It was a really, really cool experience being on a small department that way because you get a lot of experience quickly. And at what point did the interest or opportunity come up to start teaching? After about the first year or two, I, I really loved fire school. I have to give a lot of credit to the instructors that helped me progress through fire school. And I always was very fascinated by the time that they took with us. I could see the passion. I could see the love for the job. It didn't matter how long you wanted to stick around and talk to them about the job or ask questions about maybe the curriculum that you're working on, or maybe you wanted to stay and practice a few more skills. There really wasn't anybody that was in a rush or wanted to just get out of there. And that really fascinated me. And I think because of my background with kind of the coaching and mentoring working for TELUS, I really liked helping people. I really enjoyed being able to pass on and share things that worked for me. After about the first year of me being on the career side of the fire department in Chatham-Kent, I just started to reach out. I applied to St. Clair College, so the college that I went to fire school. And I figured, you know, it's probably a little early. I don't have a lot of experience yet. I mean, I'd had three years as a volunteer, so plus that first year on the career side. But I just felt like maybe it's a little early, but I'm going to throw my name in there and maybe I can start out just helping out, like teching or helping set up equipment for testing days or whatever. So I, I put my name in at St. Clair College in Windsor at the pre-service program. And I also applied to Lambton College, which that would have been the school to go to 
in terms of the facilities. It's about an hour from Chatham, so it was a bit of a drive. So I ended up hearing back from Lambton right away, and they wanted me to come down for an interview. So I headed down and had an interview, and, and it was an interesting interview. Like I actually felt more pressure and more stress than I did in even my career fire interview. So there was five people hitting me up with questions. So each of them would take turns asking me questions. And it was all the full-time faculty from the fire school. So there was like an industrial faculty, there was the pre-service faculty, and then there was fire science faculty and the dean, and then the coordinator. I thanked them for their time. I was heading out. And before I could even get to the door, the coordinator at the time, Jason Arns, he actually stopped me and said, hey, Phil, he goes, can you start pretty soon? And I was like, yeah, I can start, I mean, as soon as you need me. And that was kind of the start of it. So within the first few weeks, I started getting some shifts and going in. And again, I just kind of started with just assisting, right? I wasn't uh, like a lead instructor. I wasn't teaching any classes. It was more kind of in the background, just kind of helping out, offering a little feedback once in a while to some of the students. And then that just progressed pretty quick into me kind of getting more involved and, and kind of taking on more of a lead role with the pre-service and then the fire science programs over the years. I actually worked there for probably close to 10 years. And what about within your own department? When did that start? That started pretty early on too, like probably within the first three or four years when we started bringing in some new younger guys. I'd, and it wasn't a formal thing. It was more these guys would come and work on our shift, like that first four weeks that they were doing their recruit time. I just really took the time and, and took a liking to spending more time with these younger new firefighters and showing them the rigs and talking about the tools and maintaining the tools and the equipment, really trying to instill the things that were important to me and, and a lot of the crew members, right, that are valuable to this job. And when did you take on the training officer role? Around the seven-year mark, I was working on a platoon and our senior captain actually promoted to an assistant chief of operations and training. Knew me from working at Lambton College and being on his crew and being very involved with like the crew training and stuff too. Like I really, as I got further along, like five, six, seven years into my my career, I, I'd really enjoyed doing the training thing. And so he went upstairs and Chatham Ken had just been approved to hire a second training officer. So this is something that will put a little perspective into our department for you is there's 19 fire stations, three of them full-time and the rest are volunteer, the other 16. And there's over 400 firefighters and there was one training officer for the department. That training officer, he had been on the job for Quite a few years when I was in my rookie years, wonderful guy, guy by the name of Pat Martin. He did a absolutely amazing job. He was just an absolute thrill to sit in a class with. Just listening to his stories and his experiences were, were phenomenal. But he ended up coming back to the trucks and a new person was hired for training. And they came from outside the department, actually, because there was no interest from inside. But they were approved to, to get a second training officer, and they obviously could see that there was some need for, there's a lot of certification stuff coming down the pipe with the grandfathering with OFM and all these new recruits for the volunteers. They all needed to be certified now. So they got an approval through council to get the second position. When the assistant chief went up, they had asked me if I was interested. And I actually, right off the hop, was like, no, I'm not. I just couldn't see myself leaving the rigs and the crew. And I just, I love riding the back step of the truck or the back seat. I enjoy driving as well, but I just love being on that back step, being the first guy off and stretching the line or forcing the door or doing the work. That was the, the one thing that I just couldn't see myself doing was leaving the trucks. They'd asked me a couple times. I said no. And then I kind of started to kind of entertain the idea. And I asked for some details and stuff. And I ended up saying yes. 
after the first couple of weeks, I realized very quickly that it, I had made a really wrong choice for myself personally. I struggled big time during that time, just mentally feeling like I was letting people down, feeling like maybe I should give this a try. I really do love the training. I, I really do feel like I could help the department. And I had a lot of people reach out to me at that time, and they were pretty happy to hear that I was going into that role. So it was, it was a tough time for me, really tough time for me. I ended up backing out. I guess I could say I got lucky and was able to go back down to my shift and get back on the trucks after a couple of weeks of of doing it. I, I, I probably didn't give it a, an honest effort. I was super torn. I just, every time I came into work, so I was obviously straight days, I'd come in, see the guys and there they are riding the trucks, the tones would go off and off they go. And I'm heading up to my office. It just, uh, it, it's really hard to explain the feeling. I just felt like I had lost something. I just needed to get back. I know I let some guys down and it really kind of changed some relationships for me too with some people that I had been really close with. Again, we've had similar experiences. I went into our training division for three and a half years and then decided to come back out. So it totally resonates everything you're saying. Yeah. You mentioned brass. So how did you end up getting connected with that cadre and teaching force entry? You probably remember this. It was the free training days through Canadian Firefighter Magazine. They were offering some free conference passes. It was probably, I think it was around 2012 was the first or maybe it was their second time doing it. But my brother and I and a couple guys from the fire department, we decided we would enroll and forcible entry just seemed to be something that I was interested in taking. The live fire classes were all booked. We couldn't get a spot. So the next thing was forcible entry. And I'm like, yeah, that looks cool. Let's take that. It was right around the time when the Burn documentary out of Detroit was hitting. It was Friday night, the Burn documentary premiere at the Fox Theater in Detroit. So we had gotten tickets to go to that. And then the very next day was the free training days. So it was a pretty packed weekend for us in terms of fire service stuff. But we went down to Detroit, watched the premiere. That was a super cool experience to be down there to see that. And then the very next morning, we had to head to, I think it was Guelph, actually, to their training site there. We took the force entry class with Brotherhood Instructor. That was the first time I'd ever met or even heard of Andrew Broussard and guys like Bruno Lamar, Justin Carson, who actually had been an uh, instructor of mine at St. Clair College. So I kind of knew Justin a little bit. I hadn't really formed a, a relationship with him up to that point. But we took the class, and it was just the coolest thing that I had ever done in the fire service to that date. Just listening to their passion, the knowledge, and then them explain and show you how to force these doors and these techniques. So Chatham Kent actually didn't even have a set of irons on the rigs back then. So seeing the tools and getting a chance to work with the props and the rotary saws and things like that, it was mind blowing to me at the time. It really stuck with me that I started diving in deeper and looking things up and finding different cadres out of the States like Brothers in Battle and Irons and Ladders. And there's there's a whole bunch of different sites you could get on. And, and they had like videos of them forcing real commercial doors. And I just took a liking to it. Andrew Broussard used to be on Facebook. It's funny to say that now because he's, he's not on Facebook anymore, but he'd see me commenting or asking questions on some of these videos and stuff. And that's how Brass and I kind of started to kind of form a relationship. So I'd taken his class, didn't really know him too well. We'd talked a little bit at the training day, but it was really the Facebook thing that stuck and that kind of formed the, the relationship. He started messaging me, asking me questions about the department and just different things. And then naturally I knew that I had this resource there that 
was a wealth of knowledge. Like the things that he's done and seen and been a part of over all these years is phenomenal. So I would reach out to him, shoot him a message and, and ask him questions about, I had a, a door that I forced at a, at a townhome and I had some questions about the baseball swing and it was easy for me to just send him a message and be like, brass, this is what happened. What would you do? Or what could I have done differently? And he just kind of became like this mentor to me. And I, I don't even know if he really knows that today, but he was pretty instrumental in, in my love for forcible entry. I'd say like just listening to him talk and teach that classroom session before we went out to the grounds. It was pretty amazing. That cadre that you're a part of now and these other cadres you mentioned, just these people that have, there's no judgment, right? They're just authentic. They're genuine. They just want to pass information on. They just want to teach. Yeah, absolutely. And how did the True North Fools get started and how'd you get involved with them? The True North Fools kind of came to be, it was 2020 when we kind of officially formed it, contacted the Fools International to start the chapter down here in Southwestern Ontario. But it really kind of came to be through Justin Carson's. I'd been to FDIC with Justin probably 2015, 2016, something like that. And when we were down there, we went to the Fool's Bash and the Bagpipers and just the whole experience. Again, like it just was one of those things that I just knew that this is why I'm in the fire service because it just resonates so deep with me. So we're down there at the Fool's Bash and we're on the street and the Bagpipers and the ladders are up and these, the Americans just, they do it so grand. It's, it's phenomenal. While we were there, we're standing there at the Fool's Bash and, and Justin says, we should start a Fool's chapter in, in Ontario. And I didn't even think it was something that we could do. I thought it was just kind of an American thing. And we kind of blew it off for a few years. We joked about it. And Justin really was kind of the, the guy that headed it up. And he kind of just kept talking about it. And we got involved with a few other guys, like Jeff Cowan's a good friend of ours. Rob T-Bear, who's also a Chatham Kent firefighter. He's a deputy chief out of Tilbury on the volunteer side. And he's a super passionate, engaged guy. The group of us have kind of been hanging out and talking and bouncing stuff off each other for years. And we've all kind of worked instructing at the colleges and doing some outside training stuff at acquired structures and things like that. So we just kind of all came to an agreement in 2020. We just like, let's do it. Let's, let's fill out the application and let's do it. Let's start it. And that's kind of how it became. Any challenges with starting it up? What's the process? Like, how's the experience been? There's an application form on the Fools International site. You fill it out. You put your territory and all that stuff in there where you're going to be. There was already a Fools group in Ontario, actually. The Hogtown Fools, I think they formed a year or a year or two before us. So they're out of like the GTA area. So they were already kind of established. So then we were just trying to fill the void in southwestern Ontario. It's four or five hour drives a little much to be a part of that group. So we thought we'd do our own thing. And it was it was pretty straightforward. We fill out the application and they got back to us right away. They kind of gave us the criteria. And then we just started accepting applications. We started putting the word out there. We started a Facebook page. It was crazy how quickly it grew. I'd say within the first two or three months, we had almost 100 members signed up. So there's like a small initiation fee to join. And portion of that goes to the Fools International to support some of their causes. It really took off and it was amazing. It really kind of spiraled super quick. And then from there, we started talking about, okay, what can we do? Because obviously the Fool's mission is about training and brotherhood and giving back to the communities that we serve and being good members of the fire service and treating each other with respect and dignity and passing on and sharing the trade. And I think that's, we all share that common thing. Like that's kind of the thing that we gravitate to is just, we, we really truly believe in being the best we can be at this job and passing it on and sharing that knowledge with people and hopefully inspiring others to do the same. Yeah, so why not start a conference? 
that was our next step. And honestly, like we literally have to give all the credit to Rob T-Bear on that one. Like he is a go-getter extraordinaire. He basically called me one day and he's like, Phil, I'm starting this conference. I think I'm just going to call it smoke a showing. And I'm like, okay, well, what's the plan? He's like, well, can you uh, reach out to so-and-so and and ask if they might be interested in being involved? Like we need to start looking for sponsors. And it just kind of spiraled into this crazy thing really quickly. And we started looking to get acquired structures. We wanted to do live fire. We wanted to be able to have realistic conditions. So we've all kind of worked at the fire schools and realized that these cinder block buildings aren't exactly the most ideal. There's obviously a lot of red tape around acquired structures and stuff, but we've got some guys that are certified that can help us with that, getting signed off and getting things squared away in terms of the safety aspects and all that. So we kind of just ran with it. And Rob T-Berry just grabs the bull by the horns and he's like, let's do it. And he starts making phone calls and he starts making contacts. And he had different vendors set up for bringing brand new trucks down, demo trucks that we could use at the conference to pump with. And it was going to be a big deal the first time. And then it was supposed to happen in 2020 initially. We'd started selling tickets. We had, I think we had already had 80 people register and then COVID hit and put a huge stop to the whole thing. And the initial conference was supposed to take place in Chatham, Kent. So we were going to use like the Bradley Center, which is like a, a convention hall in Chatham. So we were going to have like the vendors set up and kind of kind of do it like a little mini FDIC. That's kind of the way Robbie always kind of envisioned it. Like, let's do the vendors and have a variety of things for people here. Like we wanted to do some mental health stuff. We wanted to do fitness stuff. We wanted to kind of cover a bunch of bases. And looking back now, it, I always thought like, man, are we biting off more than we can chew here? But it just seemed to kind of fall into place. And then COVID hit and we had to pump the brakes obviously really fast. And that first year conference didn't happen. Yeah, I was excited to come down. I was going to talk and then the whole world got blindsided. We were really pumped. We had really good people set up and yeah, the whole world came to a screeching halt. COVID really rattled you personally too, right? And it was a tough time for me the last couple of years. I have my beliefs and the vaccination thing wasn't something that I was willing to do. There's a lot of information out there and on both sides and it was misinformation and disinformation and all these things that were the government was throwing around and I was doing my own research and I'm not somebody that ever took a flu shot and I just was really grounded in my beliefs and and believing in your immune system and never been someone that's sick. I am not on any prescription medications and I've been very fortunate and genetically my family's been very much the same. So I've just really trusted that and the stats just didn't prove it for me. So yeah, everyone was just making the best decision they could for themselves at the time. Yeah. And then, and then all of a sudden these mandates started to happen. My employer obviously got on board with every other employer, municipal government, things like that. I don't know if someone was watching out. It was a blessing that the municipality of Chatham Kent decided that they were going to allow for a rapid antigen test instead of mandatory vaccination. So I went that route. It was about a year and a half for me of every 72 hour testing. And, and the financial hit. There was a financial hit to it because I had to go to Shoppers Drug Mart to get the test. That was the place that they wanted us to go. So I had to make an appointment. I had to obviously wait in line some days. And then it was 40 bucks a pop for those tests. I struggled with it mentally. I just, I went back and forth. Like, is this worth it? And then there was a lot of worry that they could pull the rug out from underneath of me and leave me no choice but to vaccinate or find a new job. This thing that you love so much and then not seeing an end in sight, everyone was sort of at a loss. It was a very trying time for me and the family. And I've got two young kids. I got a seven-year-old, two little girls, seven-year-old and a five-year-old. And it was a big struggle. And it really affected your ability to instruct as well. 
Yeah, actually, the college put a policy in place as well that it was a mandatory vaccination. There was no testing option. So I ended up temporarily losing my job at the college. I just have chosen to not go back at this time. It's been hard. It's been very difficult because there was so much change for me in such a short period of time. I taught at Lambton College two to three days a week, along with doing the fire job. And it was a a huge, huge hit for me. With all the exposure now you've had to the service, to schools and certification, like why don't we jump off into that angle now and certification and what's your perception of, as a lot of us put it, the checkbox culture. Yeah, the checkbox culture. That is definitely the the way we term it. It's like what's in the textbook and what we actually do on the streets are two very different things. And I always struggle with that as an instructor because I like to be a straight shooter and I like to tell it how it is. I'm a firm believer in the truth. So I always felt like when we taught to the curriculum, the the OFM sign-off standards, it really wasn't setting anybody up for success. It was, it felt very fake to me. It's like, we're just going through the motions to go through the motions just to put a check in the box. So I always really struggled with that. And I think I always tried to do both. I tried to give them what was in the book and what they would be tested on, but then also show them that kind of real world, what's worked for firefighters. Something that I've always done is I've made sure that I've maintained professional development throughout my career. The department I work for, we don't do a whole lot of that, just based on the staffing and the way that the department is. And I kind of mentioned the the training, how many training officers we have, right? I've attended conferences over the years. I've been very involved with taking courses. So a lot of that stuff that I pass on has come from other people. I always really took it upon myself to share that. But I think the certification process is, I think it's faulted. I really do. I don't think it sets anybody up for success in the sense that they're going to continue to pursue that education or that knowledge piece. I, I see a lot of people come in and they, I'm certified now. I've got the job. Like it's, oh, let's coast. Let's just come in and do our job now. And I think there's so much more to the fire service and so much more to the job itself to be prepared for. Yeah, it's way too dynamic. It is. And, and I realize it more and more now. I actually just wrote my captain's exam a couple weeks ago, and I haven't been officially uh, promoted to, to an acting captain yet, but I got my test results. And it's really opened my eyes to a whole nother side of the, the job. And there's going to be a lot more responsibility in the future. And I feel like there's so much more learning for me now. What drove you to want to promote? Well, the department is based out of seniority, but it's basically my where I am on the seniority list. We've had a, a big turnover with the senior guys retiring. So I moved up the list pretty quickly, actually. It's pretty rare in this department, at least in a lot of years, to be writing your captain's exam at like 11, 12 years on the job. Even before I wrote it, I just didn't feel like I was, like I hadn't had enough years yet. It's going to be an interesting ride the rest of my career now, but I I definitely am very committed to continually learning and uh, and evolving and moving into that position and that role. But I feel like it's something that I need to do. And talk to me more about your approach to training. And you mentioned how we're not able to always see the forest for the trees and how we're trying to make things too elaborate and complicated and overly technical. I see that quite often, actually, even in our just our daily crew training and stuff. I see a lot of times guys think about training like it needs to be very elaborate or there needs to be a lot involved. And it's hard for us to commit to that in a small department like this because we can't go out of service, so to speak. Like I know some city departments, bigger departments can fill a spot or another rig will cover their district for a couple hours while they go off and do some live fire training or whatever their stuff is there. So we don't have that luxury in Chatham. And, I, and I've, I've always seen this where it's like, 
we just don't do a whole lot of training because it seems like we don't want to get too committed. Like pulling a bunch of equipment off the trucks, if the tones drop and it's a structure fire and there could be victims trapped and we've got all this equipment out, we're behind the eight ball. I've heard that said for a lot of years where it's like, well, we can't do that because we need to be ready. We need to be at the ready all the time. And I completely get that and I completely respect that, right? We need to be there first for our, for our civilians or for our taxpayer. I see opportunities where instead of making things so elaborate or committing so much equipment or apparatus to a, to a training evolution, I really think that if we stick to the basics, that's the winning strategy. I think we can break it down skill by skill. Just something as simple as getting your crew to throw their gear on, just practice masking up in a timely fashion and make it fun and competitive, right? And get the stopwatch out, try it with gloves on, try it with gloves off, get to know your equipment, set your helmet strap up the way it's going to be advantageous to be able to pull that tight real quick in a hurry. And there's just a lot of little fine details that I think we miss because we feel like when we train, we've got to be so committed. Yeah, you mentioning about people being wary of pulling things off the truck. That's still happening today. That happens in every department. But really, like you said, if you keep it simple, you pull one ladder off the truck. How long does it take you to put one ladder back on the truck or to put the irons back on the truck? Or you can hook up to the hydrant in front of your station and use hose off the rack. I mean, you could just leave it there and come back and get it. So I think there's ways around these excuses. For sure. Things like just hooking a 65 to the hydrant outside the station. We've got a couple of stations that have hydrants right there. Throwing a couple lengths of 65 and throwing a smoothbore on the end and flowing the line, moving the line and just simple little things, right? And it's it's spare hose off the rack and a nozzle. So if, if something comes in, it's just a matter of spinning the nozzle off and getting on the rigs. Yeah, and you don't even need the pump to set the pressure. You can just find the correct number of lengths of hose that gives you the flow you need. Exactly, and that's something that we picked up from Nozzle Forward, Aaron Fields, and even just things like forcing the door, and like we've got some props now in Chatham. Like I said, we've had some, like the department's really taken some amazing steps in the right direction, I think, and we've gotten some sea containers now. We're not doing live fires in them yet. I hopefully that transitions to that someday. But I think we're getting out more and they're running some scenarios and throwing some dummies in the tower and we're doing victim removals and we're doing some VES stuff, some oriented window search. And it's absolutely wonderful to see. We're getting better at that. We really are. And I think that's happening province-wide, maybe even right across the country. And what about the acceptance of standard resource deployments and playbooks? Some consistency across the way we do things as a department as opposed to, well, my station on this shift does it this way. And this feeling that they show up to the fire on their own and can just choose to operate the way they want as opposed to a department operating as a team. That's actually something that Chatham's actually started to get involved with as well. It kind of was willy-nilly, so to speak, in my early years. From one crew to the next, from one officer to the next, based on experience levels or the types of calls that they've maybe gone to over the years. And I just noticed that early on, there was quite a bit of overtime too. So I worked a lot and got to kind of float around and see some of these different crews and work for different officers. And in recent years, Chatham started to kind of adopt this playbook and it's actually called the playbook. So it's kind of an operational guideline or or document that kind of takes you through some of the finer points of this is what happens at the high-rise fire this is the equipment that needs to go these are the procedures for that like it goes into a much greater detail which i think is really setting up our firefighters and our officers for success because now they've got a document that they can pull out and they can pick pieces of that and we can go and do training and we can just focus on like one aspect so take high-rise for instance like 
let's take the the four guys on on engine one today and let's go over to the high rise and and let's talk about what the driver's doing and then let's talk about what the crew's doing and what floor you're going to and why and what equipment are you taking and what are we doing if the floor's tenable versus not tenable conditions and it's really helped us kind of refine how our training goes and i think it's really been a huge improvement and it's it's definitely a a living document and it's something that we can keep building on and changing and adding and evolving when you have something structured as a foundation it keeps the well what if we do it this way what if we do it this way well what if what about this what about that like it it keeps that sort of it's always good discussion to have but i feel like in an unstructured training session without something to refer to it can get derailed quickly have you seen Boyd Street yet? I haven't watched the full video yet. I actually bookmarked it on Facebook there, and I've been meaning to get to it. I've heard some good things about it. I, I love what the LAFD does with those videos after fires, and such a great resource for us. Really impressive, the area that they run in and all the challenges that they face. Yeah, and they've been making those educational videos for quite some time. I know I've, I've watched several others. They've had some different fires with storage units and, again, fascinated with forcible entry, but there's a whole piece on cutting the doors. And it's amazing to see a department like that that has the resources that's putting out things that can help us all. What are your thoughts on producing videos so that training and information is consistently delivered or at least something to refer to within your station in your department? So I talked about Pat Martin, or my first training officer, when I got on the career side of the fire department. That was actually something that he was doing even back then. He realized that there's only one of him and 400 firefighters. So he started putting some videos together on how to pack different hose bundles or just certain things of the job that he could send out and those crews could watch them and then go and train on those those aspects. I think it's an amazing resource. I think it's maybe underutilized even today. Even in our own department, I think it could be done more. Something that myself and another member on the department, a fellow by the name of PJ Laprise, he's also a Fools member with us. We started a page that's a private group on Facebook quite a number of years now, probably like eight or nine years ago, called it CK Firecraft. And it's a private access group just for our career members. So if they choose to join it, they can. We've got a pretty good representation of the fire department on there. There's, there's a lot of members that we work with that have joined the page. And we use it as kind of a resource tool to share stuff that we see. So the Boyd Street Fire, it's been shared on there. I just haven't had a chance to watch it yet. But you name it, there's stuff that's getting posted on there. And there's some dialogue that goes along with it. So we've actually taken it a step further and posted like first arrival photo of a fire and posed a couple questions like, what's your initial radio report? Where's the fire potentially located in this house? Like just things that kind of get the mindset going of what we see and what are our next actions, right? We've been using that over the years. It's has its ups and downs. And I just think it's a great resource and anything that people see online that want to share it, we can talk about it. So we're kind of doing that sort of thing. We're not really making our own videos, but we're definitely uh, trying to pass on what we see, worthwhile reads and videos and things like that. On that topic, what's your opinion on helmet cams? I love them personally. I, I don't have one. We have had a member on the fire department that I'm on that's had one. He's retired now. He's He had some pretty cool footage that we were able to watch at a fire in an old Victorian home. I think we need to use them more personally. I, I think it could be an amazing resource for the entire department. I think there's still that reluctance for liability. There's red tape around it, I feel. Definitely heard mixed things. Some of the chiefs really don't want to see them. 
there's definitely that reluctancy. I think the good could definitely outweigh the bad, but hopefully we can get there. Even with the Boyd Street incident, uh, it really was huge in them understanding exactly the sights and sounds and what actually led to what happened and connecting with their stories. So yeah, I think there's huge value. Yeah, I agree. What's your feeling on the Brotherhood of the Fire Service, the family of the fire service? Are you optimistic? Do you think it still exists? What are your thoughts on the future? I believe it is still well and good. It's very strong. I don't think every member of the fire service feels that way. But when you connect with like-minded people, it is very strong. We just had that smoker showing conference last month in, in Sarnia there. And we had close to 100 people at that conference. And the energy was was electric. It was it was phenomenal. Like the brotherhood is alive and well, and there are a lot of like-minded people out there trying to do the same thing: make the fire service better, leave it better than we found it. What's your approach, and say your department's approach to mental health, and how have you seen that change over the years you've been on? So our department does have a, a mental health program. We've got a few members. We had a few past members that have retired. We've got a couple of new people stepping up and they're currently taking some classes. I haven't really seen many challenges in terms of like on our department specifically. We haven't really had any issues with like the PTSD with members off and things like that. So we've been pretty fortunate that way, I think. But we do have a program in place, a wellness program. There's resources for us if we needed them, which I think is is a wonderful thing to have. Do you feel like you have a strong, open culture where you're at and people are naturally just venting and talking to each other and it's not shoved down? I wouldn't say that we're naturally super open. I think a lot of us still are bottling things up and it's tough because if people aren't talking about it, it's hard to know if if people are having challenges, right? So yeah, I think there's definitely room for improvement for sure. And hopefully these these new members that are that are getting involved with it can help with that. What's the next few years looking like for you? What's your plans within the fire service? Obviously stepping into a new role. Yeah, I'm going to hunker down, I think. Like I said, I haven't been officially promoted to acting captain yet. From what I can see, I should be promoted by the new year. So come the new year, I'll be a a junior acting captain on my platoon. So I think I'm just going to kind of hunker down and really focus on that next role. Obviously not give up the firemanship side of things because I think that's first and foremost, you got to be a you got to be really involved with the firefighting to be a good captain. I think that's the only way to be. So I'm really interested in going down to Pensacola again, to Chief Isaacson's uh, ODP, the officer development program. I think that would be an amazing course to take. That's definitely in my sights. And then I think just trying to get some experience. And fortunate for me, being a junior AC coming up, I'm going to be working with the most senior officer at Station 1. He's a absolutely fantastic guy. I think there'll be a lot of uh, opportunities there to kind of learn the ropes from him. And, and not that I haven't been paying attention for the last 11 years. I've, it's definitely something that I've been paying attention this whole time, like what it's going to take for me to be a captain. And, but I, I think I'm just going to focus on the next few years really hunkering down and studying that side of it a little bit more too, about how to be a good officer. There's some books that I'd like to read, and there's probably a whole library of leadership books that I haven't read that I'd like to read as well. It's a real balance of putting yourself out there and handing over information and teaching others and then taking time to focus on yourself and expand your own mind as well. Yeah, and that's something that I have no experience with yet in the fire service, so I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that challenge. Is that a structured mentoring, like it's a part of a program, or is that just luck of the draw that you landed where you did? It's just you know, like the tradition of the fire service in Chatham, the way that they place 
those positions. So junior, intermediate, and senior ACs fall at certain fire halls with certain seniority levels of captains, right? But there will be some opportunities, but just to be able to work at station one with that senior captain, that's been sort of a a tradition in Chatham-Kent. And then once you go to intermediate AC, you go out to station three in Wallsburg and you're with the second most senior officer on the crew. And then when you advance to that next position, you're at station two so that you're basically at the, the station that you would be acting at the most. Talk to me about the two grabs you had in a six-month period recently. So they both happened in Wallaceburg. It's the station that only has four firefighters, so a captain and three firefighters on shift. We are a composite station out there, so our volunteers do come and assist, but it does take some time for them to turn out and kind of get involved with what's going on. We were on shift. Captain, who I'm very familiar with, I've worked with for a large portion of my career. Wonderful guy. Myself and two other members from our crew that we would work with on a regular basis. And we actually had a, a, a guy in from another shift working overtime that day. So he's uh, like an 18-year guy, been on the job quite some time. And we were at work. We just actually got finished eating our sup. We had a big fish fry. So one of the guys actually, he's a big ice fisherman. He brought in a bunch of perch and we had a good-sized meal. Right as we were cleaning up, we kind of got talking about don't overeat. We've had situations in the past where guys have overate. Right away, they get called to a fire and things don't go well when your belly's full kind of thing. So we were kind of laughing and joking about that and talking about some past experiences with members that have had that problem. And right away, the tones drop for a multi-alarm at a residence in, in Wallsburg, and it's a two-story walk-up building. So the address was 32 Thomas Street. As soon as it came across dispatch, right away, we were all like, oh yeah, we go, this is kind of a frequent flyer type place. So a lot of smells and bells types calls. In my career, we've never had a fire in this building. We suited up in the truck, we got our packs on, we jump out, and we're greeted with a resident from the building. And she's informing us that she's pulled the pole station in the building, which was a monitor building. It's uh, actually municipality owned. So that's how we got called as quick as we did. So she's pulled the pole station and she's informing us that she lives in apartment 106 and the apartment directly above her, which is apartment 206. She's been hearing the smoke alarm go off for quite some time. So she went upstairs, knocked on the door, no answer, can't make contact with the person that lives in the unit. And she knows the guy. She knows that he's a little bit older fella and he's got a few disabilities. But she just said that I can't make contact with him. I've been banging on the door and I'm pretty sure I could smell smoke. So I pulled the pole station. So myself, my partner on the back of the truck and the captain, we proceeded into the building. We made it through the breezeway up the stairs. And this building, just to give you a little context, is it's a very long straight run. So it's a hundred feet to the end of the hallway. And then there's a slight little jog to the right with a set of double doors. And then there's another hallway that's about 70 feet. So apartment 206 happened to be past those double doors. And it was the first apartment on the left-hand side. So we're about a hundred and say 20 feet down this hallway from the, the main entry landing stairs or lobby area. So we go upstairs, we proceed to the second floor, we get to the apartment, and obviously our first move is bang on the door, fire department, anybody in there, there's no answer. So we check the door, the door's locked. So I look at the cap and he goes, yeah, go ahead. He gave me the signal to go ahead and start forcing the door. So we're not masked up at this point. We're obviously all turned out in our gear and we've got everything with us, the irons, the CO2 extinguisher, my partner's got the tick and the captain's right there with us. So as soon as I set the ads above the top lock, I give it a little gap and we now start getting black smoke coming out of the top of the door. So on arrival, we had no signs, no signals that we had a potential fire event in this building other than the fact that the alarm was pulled. So the captain looks at us, he goes, I'm going to run back and get a hand line just in case. 
So I continue to, to gap the door a little more. We get more black smoke. We take a knee, we mask up, and then right away we're ready. We finish the door off and I hit the deck, drop down to my belly. I take a look. So obviously there's things that we're looking for, like the life fire layout piece. I literally have zero visibility and the, sm- and the hallway is now filling with smoke. I yelled at my partner. I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push in just for a second, take a look. I know these units aren't very big. We've been in these places before for medical calls and things like that. So I probably push in 10 feet. I've got the CO2 extinguisher. And as soon as I pushed in, I could feel heat to my left side. So right away, I'm like, okay, so this is the living room to the left, kitchen to the left, bedrooms are going to be to the right. So there's obviously the flip-flop of these units. So the opposite side of the hallway would be the, the reverse. Having some knowledge of this, I get in, I feel the heat, and I move to the left, and I get into that doorway that leads me to that kitchen living room area. And I happen to just look up, and I've got rollover happening above my head. It's starting to build again. So I yelled to my partner, I said, I'm going to dump this CO2 and we're going to back out and close the door and we're going to get to that lobby and get that hand line. I stand up and I try to dump that CO2 up into the upper layer. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to get in far enough to get onto the actual burning fuels or whatever that was actually physically on fire in that room. So I dump the CO2. I literally see the fire gases and smoke and everything kind of retract back above me. And it gave me a second. And obviously, I'm we got to get out of here. Let's close the door. We're going to need a handline for this. This is far more than we can handle at this point. Our extinguisher is empty. So my partner and I, we bail out. We close the door. And we're now in a hallway that is charged with smoke, probably to our knees or lower. So we shuffle down the hallway. We get all the way down to the end. So another 100 feet through these double doors, back down to that landing where the lobby breezeway entry is. And our captain's there with a 200 foot cross lay and we're out of hose. We've got a smooth bore on the tip. So he yells, he's like, I'm going back. I got to get a bundle. The driver's bringing me a bundle. We obviously spin the tip off the nozzle. We're getting prepared to get that bundle ready. Bundle comes up, partner makes a connection. I stretch that line down to the end of the hallway. And as I get to those double doors, I don't move much further. I'm waiting for water. So we call for water. We get water to the line pretty quickly. We move through the double doors, or I do. My partner's with me. I make entry back into the unit that's on fire, and it's it's rolling pretty good at this point. Open the line as soon as I hit the door and I start flowing. Left, right, wall, ceiling, wall. Do a little wash of the floor. Move in, head to the left, and get to the actual, you know, the room that's on fire. It didn't take much water at all. As soon as I started flowing, painting the wall, ceiling, bringing my line down and started hitting the, the solid burning fuels to put the fire out. I could tell I got a knock on the fire right away. Conditions started to kind of steam up. And as my streams bouncing around this room, it actually caused that front window to fail, which I started to immediately get some daylight through there. So I shut the line down. My partner was coming in behind me and he's got the tick. Obviously, I put it on the air. I said, agent applied. I've got a knockdown on this. I'm breaking off the search. So my partner comes in behind me. He's got the tick. He's scanning real quick. And he's like, yeah, you got it. You got a good knockdown. And as he's saying that, I'm breaking straight to the right and going straight to the bedroom. I hit the bedroom. The door is about half open. I push the door open. I'm, I'm obviously down in the three-point crawl. I push the door open and I see a pair of feet right in front of me. Obviously, I get on the radio, victim, victim, victim. My partner hears me. He comes and kind of coordinates to the bedroom door with me. I grab his legs, this gentleman, pull him off the bed as gingerly as I possibly could. Got him down flat on his back, lifted his legs up, grabbed him from behind the knees. And I yelled at my partner. I said, go to the apartment door. Lead me out of here. I'm coming backwards. 
partner did that. I'm dragging him out flat on his back, keeping him as low as I possibly can. We hit the hallway and I just take a beeline for it. Well, I get about 75 feet down that hallway. And in the moment, I didn't realize how far I was, but I'm literally juiced at this point. Like my legs, this this was a, a very large gentleman, probably 250, 260. All he had on was a pair of track shorts. So he was pretty slippery and stuff too. So I'm running out of gas. My legs are just literally wanting to give out on me. So I'm, I yelled at my partner. He's there with me. I said, come on, give me a hand, give me a hand. So we try to grab a hold of him and take him together. Well, now we're having some issues getting a good grip on him together because he's obviously super wet and doesn't have a shirt on. There's no clothing to grab a hold of. So I go back to the legs and I just muster it up. And I say to myself like that, just that mental toughness. I said, I got to do this. We got to get through this. We got to get him to fresh air. So the hallway's still full of smoke. I muscle it up. I drag him the rest of the way to the landing. We get him out the door into the stairway. And at this point, the volunteers are just starting to show up in Wallsburg. So we're completely juiced. Our air bottles are ringing low air. I get on the air and I say, we need help in the stairs. We've got a victim in the stairway. At that point, we kind of did a trade-off and the volunteers and our station two guys that were responding in from Chatham, which is about an 18-minute response, were just hitting town at that point. So they hadn't made it into town. So we've got a couple of volunteers getting some packs on at the truck and we end up getting this victim out to fresh air. Right away, when I'm in the landing with him, waiting for these the assistance from another crew to come help us get him down the stairs, I start kind of checking him. I, I'm rubbing his chest, sir, sir, sir. And I, I don't get anything. So I start CPR. I start pumping on his chest. I'm still on air doing my thing, bells ringing. As I'm pumping on his chest, his arm flails up and he takes a gasp for air. Obviously, the adrenaline is just pumping. I'm thinking, this guy, we've got a chance. This guy's alive. So I start yelling that radio into the captain. Is EMS on scene? We need need EMS on scene right away. Well, EMS wasn't on scene, and it turns out EMS was at shift change, and they were delayed getting to scene. So we get him out to fresh air, and we continue to work him. So we've got some firefighter paramedics on our trucks. The Station 2 truck shows up, so that's the ladder truck out of Chatham. The officer on that truck has been a paramedic for, say, 20 years or so. And right away, he come over, and we obviously were assessing him, checking for pulse. We got the bag valve mask, the oxygen hooked up, and we're just trying to breathe for him and, and keep him going until the ambulance can get him to that hospital or to care. They finally got there, they transport him to hospital, and they end up flying him to Hamilton to the burn unit. So that was kind of the way the story went. And I guess the things that I think I took away the most from that incident was obviously fire-resistant buildings are going to be few and far between in terms of showing us conditions in those moments. So on arrival, it looked like that typical smells and bells call. Yeah, we were turned out. Yeah, we took the right equipment with us for the most part. We learned some lessons that day that this building, obviously not standpipe equipped, it's a long stretch. So we've gone back and actually done some heavy involved thought process in terms of if we've got fires in these buildings, what are our options? What lines are we going to stretch? And something that our crew specifically has obviously taken serious note to after this incident was taking bundles no matter what. We run leader line setups kind of like Detroit. I know there's a lot of departments that are doing it. So two and a half with a valve on the end, a gated Y. We run gated Ys, but we've got caps on the one side. So we only hook one. Our process in these situations now, whether we've got smoke showing or not, is to, at very minimum, stretch that hose to the landing and take a couple bundles as if it was like our high-rise bundles with our smoothbore nozzle. And that way we've got some options in a quicker fashion if needed. A big takeaway for me was I'm not going to beat myself up over it. I really feel like we did the best in the moment that we had. But I look at it like if I would have just broke to the right after I dumped that extinguisher, 
I would have found a minute sooner. Could that have been that factor that maybe made the difference? This gentleman ended up living for eight weeks in the Hamilton hospital, and he ended up passing away from his injuries. So obviously heavy smoke inhalation, some burns to his lungs and things like that. That's something that I think about quite a bit. Would it made a difference? Could we have bought him some more time? It was a huge learning experience for me. And I think in that moment, there's no doubt knowing the size of that apartment, there's no reason I couldn't have done a quick search of that bedroom. It was a one bedroom apartment. Swing that door open, I would have seen his feet there. It was something that I'll take away and and I'll definitely think twice about in the future if I ever have an opportunity like that again, I am going to attempt to take a quick look. I probably did have some time to do that. And I guess especially with your familiarity of the units, you had your partner with you, they had a tick. It's a small unit. There was a lot of factors there that in the moment, under that sort of stressful environment, the adrenaline's pumping, we're short in terms of crew size. Like we can't do anything from the exterior in that sense. Like we got nobody to throw ladders. We can't do a victim removal that way. There's a lot of little factors that came to play and I've had some really good chats with the captain and I actually called him and asked him if he's okay with me sharing the story and he was completely 100%. He's like, I want you to share the story. He's like, I learned a ton that day too. I wouldn't say we were complacent, But we learned some things about how to prepare ourselves in the future for a situation like that. Like, don't take for granted that there may not be something behind that door like there was that day. And great that you had probably trained on that, which would be called one of the dirty grabs, right? Just one leg under each arm, get up to the knees, stand up and drag back, keep them low. That's definitely something that's learned and trained on. So that probably definitely had a benefit other than you just trying to wing it if you've never practiced a a drag before. I say that every time I tell this story, I definitely amount that to the fact that I have had the years of teaching at the college and being able to constantly demonstrate, talk about these techniques and and show those students like these are the things that are working in our industry. And I've learned this from from other firefighters that have been successful in these moments. Some of us get caught up with all the trinkets of the job, like having the the loop of webbing and some of these grab devices and things like that. And personally, I've listened to the grabs podcast multiple times and I know a few fellows that have made grabs and every single one that has been relatively successful, whether they've lived or died in those moments, they've resorted to that dirty grab because that's just what you're going to do in those moments. If you had found him head first, you probably would have done a, you don't know how you would have behaved in the situation, but you might have not spun him and just dragged him head first because that's how they presented I was fortunate in the sense that he presented himself laying flat on his back on the bed. Just the fact that his feet were right there, like it was a fairly small bedroom. So the door swung open and the foot of the bed was right there. It was a perfect scenario in that sense. Like as soon as the door opened, I'm running into his feet and it was like, here we go. Like I got to get him to the floor, keep him low, keep him out of this smoke and get him to fresh air and, and give him a chance. Were there two grabs you said you made in six months or... So that was the first one. So the next one was in Wallsburg as well. It was a large Victorian house that was called in around 3 a.m. And it had a, a good working fire in the back section of this house. So I was actually working in Chatham on this particular shift. I was the driver of, uh, of our ladder trucks. We've got a Pierce Aerial, the 110 Ascendant. I happened to be the, the operator that night and we got called out. We're heading down the road. We've got reports that we've got heavy fire involvement. We've got a crew inside. And then we hear we've got a victim that's coming out the front. The officer that I'm with, he's like, okay, guys, like as soon as we get there, everybody's ready, packed up, ready to go. Kind of gives me the heads up, Phil, I need you to stage the truck, get it out front just in case we need that ladder. And then as we get closer to town, we'll radio IC and see exactly what the needs are. We're amped up, we're geared up, ready to get in and, and assist We've got heavy smoke. It's a real cold night, so that smoke's really heavy, and it's really kind of banking down. It's lingering. 
So I take a quick look at the building and something that I always try to do is I try to do my own little size up and just kind of get some idea of where the the entry points are and location of the fire, what's the smoke looking like, things like that. So I take a quick look. The two guys off the back of the ladder, they take off right away and they pair up and they get tasked to get inside and help the attack crew that's inside. They've actually grabbed a girl at the top of the stairs of this place when they first went in. So right away they go in, they're experiencing a heavy volume of fire. Well, it turns out it was arson. They had been dumping gasoline all over the floors and the staircases. So there's two sets of stairs in this place, and there was an elevator shaft or like a dumbwaiter, so that old, big, Victorian-style home. So the fire was chasing up the dumbwaiter and getting into the back Charlie Delta corner of this house. The crew off the back of 214, so our ladder truck from two, Station 2, they went in and they stretched another line. They got to the top of the stairs, and they're fighting back the fire. The IC on scene, he's yelling at my officer, and myself, get your stuff, let's go, I need you guys inside, I need a search. My officer and I, we go in, we go in the front door, so we're following that hose line, and my officer decides, let's break off, let's check this front room. So we do a quick sweep of the front room, it turns up nothing. So in my head, I'm like 3 o'clock in the morning, just from following the firefighter rescue surveys info and, and listening to some of these grabs podcasts and things like that over the years, my instinct is we need to get to the bedrooms. We need to get to upstairs. Statistically, this is where we're seeing these people if there's anybody in here. So we know one's already come out. They've been transported to hospital. And this happened just before we got there. So I shout to my officer. I'm like, let's go upstairs. Let's get up. Let's get past that hand line and see if we can search the bedrooms on the other side of where this hand line is. So we go upstairs. We get to the landing of the stairs. We see our two members from station two fighting back the fire at the top of the stairs. So we move to the left of them and go down the hallway and kind of head in the a rear direction of where they're fighting off the fire. So we've got an area that we can search. My officer hits the first bedroom door. He busts a move and works his way into that bedroom. Well, hoarder conditions, very rough house. It's been known to be a drug house. So we got that information when we got the scene. There was some cops on scene that are saying that this is a known drug house. Just be careful. There is literally clutter and stuff everywhere. So there's bicycles on the second floor bedroom. There's mattresses up against the windows. All the windows were covered with heavy blankets. My officer, he's in. He's doing a quick sweep of that room. So I hold the door position. And at that point, he's in. He's got a quick sweep. It's a small bedroom. So he tells me it's a small room. I've, I think I've searched it all. I'm just going to check this back corner. So I said, I'm going to break off, go to the next room, meet me down the hallway to the left. So I break down the hallway, and my first door ends up being a bathroom. Right away, I open the door, I sweep the floor, and as I'm coming back out, there's an arm hanging out of the bathtub. So right away, on the radio, victim, 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 second floor, my officer hears me, he comes to the bathroom door. This was a much smaller gentleman this time, so I get him out of the bathtub, I get him flat on the floor, and I drag him again to the top of the stair landing. So my officer, I yell to him, I'm like, get his arms and his head and we'll get down these stairs and get him out front. So it wasn't a very far distance once we hit those stairs to go right out the front door. We lay him down and the driver of uh, our station three, so our first response operator was there. He's a, also a paramedic firefighter. Right away, he starts assessing him. He realizes pretty quickly that he's not conscious. He's not breathing. There's not much going on there. So EMS is, we've got two ambulances on scene at this point after there was the first victim. They come over and they do their thing and they obviously pronounce him dead on scene. We were 18 to 20 minutes, maybe even a little longer by the time we got to the top of the stairs and I located him in the bathroom. It was a difficult fire too. That one got into the walls, balloon frame. We ended up being there until the next morning fighting that one. The long run to the scene is a big factor. 
that second due response, right? And and the volunteers did turn out in Wallsburg, but they were getting there right around the same time we pulled up in the area. It was just a tough one, three o'clock in the morning. The weather conditions were cold and damp and the building itself, like it just got away on us. And the fact that it was arson, three people died in that fire. Someone was found in the basement the next day. We never ended up having an opportunity to search the basement because of the advancing fire conditions. We were pulled out by IC just based on the conditions that were presenting themselves after we had that second grab. How have these two grabs now changed the way you see search and fire attack and the way you approach going to fires? It's really kind of just concreted the mindset in terms of the importance of what we're actually there for, right? Like, I mean, life before anything. And I think I learned a lot in those moments, like to be blessed to have an opportunity to to affect a rescue or to affect a grab. You hear all the time, like I've worked with guys that have been on the job 20, 25 years, and they've never been presented in an opportunity in the moment. Having had that opportunity now and kind of knowing what I know and having been involved with the training really concreted for me that the mindset piece. And I always think of this term, it's a Navy SEALs term, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. It's something that I've always kind of tried to share with students at Lambton College and new recruits. And I think the biggest factor for me is really trying to stay calm in those stressful moments and environments. And it's something that I'm continually going to work on. I feel like I'm, I'm making progress. And even in my early years on the job, my heart rate was up before we even got on scene. Your breathing, your respirations were a little bit faster than what they maybe should be. And over the years, I've started to control that a little more. And having had these two moments now, it's really shown me that stress and that pressure and the adrenaline really kind of controls us in, in a lot of ways that we don't realize. And having those opportunities now, I feel like I'm going to be better prepared in the future for those moments. And I'm going to think about taking that second to, to take a quicker look and maybe use my partner that's got the tip to help me with that. I think it's really helped me slow down the mind piece. I really, truly feel like I'm better prepared now for future opportunities. Yeah, because we really are fighting our biology that's a natural human reaction, right? Or we're wired to react in that way. So you really, you're trying to become aware of when it's happening and how to mitigate it. I really think if we can control those moments and stay calm and the confidence piece obviously comes from those experiences. And I think those two experiences that I've had in the last year and a half or so, it's been a blessing for me. I really think that it's been a blessing that way. It's just really going to give me the ammo now to stay calmer and to think about the things that I should be doing, not rushing my way through it, so to speak. When you're in full work mode, do you have moments where you're body aware and breath aware or listening to yourself? Do you hear your reg? Do you relax your breathing? Like, how do you get yourself back under control? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that I've tried to work on even before I had grabs. When I was in the truck in my earlier years and we'd be responding to a reported structure fire, maybe it's a confirmed structure fire, I would notice myself getting more and more amped up, like the adrenaline piece. And I'd catch myself running while I'm stretching hose. I started to become more consciously aware of that, trying to control my breathing, using breathing techniques like breathe in through the nose, out through the mouth, try to help regulate the heart rate. And that's absolutely something that I've, I've tried to become more and more conscious of and more aware of as I've progressed through my career in the last, I've been doing it for about 15 years, but it's going to be a work in progress forever because it can be exciting and it can be stressful. There's no doubt. And I mean, you're going to something that you, you have no idea what you're going to at this point until you get on scene and there's always variables that present themselves that you're maybe unprepared for too. And do you use that same approach even when you're driving? Because I found that's really where it came from for me is 
wanting to stay loose and relaxed and calm and keep my heart rate down while I'm driving because there's a lot going on. It's definitely a factor with the driving piece too. I wouldn't say that's where I noticed it though the most. It was definitely riding the back step of the truck and just getting amped up, like getting excited. And I think a part of that came from like the love of wanting to do it. I've always just wanted to pursue the experience piece. Like I want more, I want more and more and more because it's just going to help settle me into that confidence that I feel like I need to have to really set that mindset when these moments are happening and, and it's going to prepare me in the future for when you move into that role of officer and things, because things get more intense, I feel, as you become more responsible for the crew that you're with or or the firefighters that are on scene, right? Like there's a lot going on. And that's obviously uh, something that I'm going to take throughout the rest of my career. And I'm going to try to be very conscious of that and learn to stay calm as a captain responding to a fire or having to take the incident commander position initially, or that will be a very helpful skill set. Yeah, I think it's an important thing for people that are considering getting into the career or are new to the career to realize that biological reaction, that mental reaction happens to everybody at all levels of their experience and career. The difference is, is that hopefully the people that have been on longer have learned how to manage it. So it's not like we're not having the same reaction as everybody else, but we're just mitigating it and managing it differently. I haven't done rapid fire questions in a while. You want to hammer out a few of those to finish off? Yeah, sure. You can take as long as you want with the answers. It's just consistent questions at the end. Smoothbore or fog nozzle? Smoothbore. <laughs> Any reasons behind that? It's not even questionable for me. If you're going interior, the, the smooth bore is the way to go. That solid stream of water, just the punch that it packs. I mean, I, and I've seen it in the training towers. Fortunately, Chatham Kent's been very progressive over the last few years, and we're running smooth bores on our pre-connects. I just have seen the difference, Scott. I think it's amazing what the smooth bore will do versus the fog. The other thing that, that I have to say about the, the smooth over the fog, too, for interior operations is there's no room for error. So... There's no selectable pattern. So we see this a lot when guys are in the front yard, they'll purge the line. And something that we really stress with the new recruits in Chatham is if you've got a fog nozzle on a line, that you have to check the pattern. So we do this thing called purge pattern pressure before we make entry. And it's it's probably a common thing everywhere, but it's the three Ps we call it, right? So I like the fact that the smooth bore takes away any sort of factor in terms of the nozzle getting bumped, you get into the fire room of origin and you open up and you're not on the right stream all day smooth bore. Yeah, I'll show people that I'm showing it to you. You put it on the ground and you move it, it'll roll. The first habit they learn is pick it up, turn it to the right every single time. Yeah, so at least it's on straight. And even just the low pressure, like the pressure, the nozzle pressures with moving a line, making corners, like in a, in a small department in Chatham, for instance, I've just seen it work so well. Like there's only two to three people moving a hose line inside these places, right? And that low pressure nozzle, it really does make a big difference. Are you a mask up with your gloves on or gloves off? I'm a gloves off guy. Have you watched any of the videos of gloves on? What are your opinions of it? I've tried both. I just really have gotten into a system and it's it's that routine. It's that that structure. It's always the exact same way. So for years now, I've always had a glove strap that I wear on my coat and it's right there on my chest. So it's mask up, gloves on, ready to rock. And I, I probably shouldn't work as much as I do with my gloves off, but anything outside, throwing ladders, stretching that initial line, forcing a door, I'm kind of a gloves off guy until I'm ready. The new style of gloves with the, the cuff, they're a lot easier to pull on as well. Yeah, those Vanguard gloves, I've actually been meaning to get a pair and give them a try. I haven't, I haven't had an opportunity yet. Even the dexterity of how it's a small thing, how your index finger meets your thumb, 
is different. It meets flat as opposed to your thumb being on the side. It's a strange thing how they stitch the older style gloves. You just get better feel, I think, right? Like with with gloves that are fitted better that way. Are you a radio strap guy or do you have it in your pocket? Radio strap all the way. Do you have your reasons for that? Yeah, I mean, I read the Fairfax report probably the first year on the job and it totally sold me on the fact that the radio strap's the only way to go. I like having made a button high and low as well. Yeah, absolutely. Crew workout or do you work out on your own? I do a little working out on my own. There are crews on the job though that are very regimented in having those crew workouts. Chatham, we don't really have like a routine or anything like that. We don't have workout equipment. We don't have gyms. So it's been kind of a, a mashup of members bringing in the sandbag or the rowing machine when they are in for a couple of shifts kettlebells it's using the back step of the truck as a step up using lengths of hose to do like the battle ropes it's it's kind of just a mashup of things but yeah the crew that i'm on we don't really do a whole lot of working out together i'm more of a do it on my own kind of guy dorm rooms or separate rooms dorm rooms 100 percent. we got old school fire stations and they're all wide open we do have some female quarters though we do have a couple females on the job so they do have their own they have their own rooms and what about crew meals or everybody for themselves? Always crew meals. The whole department's like that. Like lunch, breakfast, dinner, you name it. It's full on. It's interesting to hear there's still departments that don't do it. That blows me away, Scott, to be honest, because I think that's where it all comes together at the kitchen table. You'll hear that said, if you follow the fire service anywhere, the kitchen table's where, where everything happens. The camaraderie. Yeah, the iconic images, the helmet, the axe, the hose, the kitchen table. <laughs> yeah, Squad, aerial, or pumper? I'm going to go with the pumper. I'm an engine guy for sure, yeah. Even with the force entry? It's different because we don't have a truck company. I shouldn't say we don't. We do now at Station 2. It's a ladder crew. But for years, the engine was everything. We literally were the first due truck. We were forcing entry. We were stretching that line. We were making the search. We were doing the ventilation. Like We've got a very small staff department, like four guys to a structure fire, and then we get another four out of Station 2. And then if you're in Wallsburg, it's four people. And do you have a favorite drill? I really enjoy the ladder drills, grabbing the ground ladder and going out and throwing them, raising, lowering, and single firefighter, just based on our staffing as well. Like I know our OGs for years had said two firefighters. It was a challenge because I was doing high shoulder carries and, and some of those techniques and was being criticized a little bit. But when they started to see that it was possible... Uh, more people started to try it and get on board and and it's something that we do often we go out and we grab those ground ladders and and drill on them because i think that's a huge aspect of the job that i think i don't think it gets utilized enough quickly so something with on our crew too our driver once he gets the pump set the pressure set things are kind of squared away getting the ground ladder off the truck and getting it up to the building is uh is kind of the next move so doing that on your own is is important I watched a great video recently. They had the three L's for drivers, which was look. So as, a, as you get everything set up, then you're going to take a look at those outside eyes. You can probably relay some information. And the other one was lights. And uh, the last one was ladders. Nice. I like that. The yeah, three L's. So it kind of speaks to what to, you just said. I might have to, I might have to borrow that. <laughs> yeah, I just borrowed it so you can borrow it. <laughs> acronyms or no acronyms, speaking of the three L's. <laughs> I don't mind the acronyms if they're... Like, I, I think you can definitely overdo it, but I think sometimes it just, it simplifies things for some people, right? And it keeps things top of mind. I, I like them. And I know a lot of guys in the department that I'm on, they use them. Even when it comes to the promotional tests and stuff, they're, they're constantly thinking about, okay, well, what's that acronym? 
So when we do testing for street identification and stuff, we've got a few acronyms that we've put together. Do you find they're beneficial for studying and on the fireground as prompts, or do you prefer them one or the other? If you can use them and they work to your advantage, I think that's okay too. The department's definitely not putting any pressure on us to have them all memorized or anything like that. So It's kind of like just having your gear set up a certain way, right? If this is the way you do business in your head, that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else on your mind you want to lay down here before we say goodbye? Thanks for having me on. I, uh, I've been listening to your podcast for a few years and follow your website and stuff like that. I think what you're doing is phenomenal. I really do. I think you're definitely leaving the fire service better than you found it. And kudos to you for doing it. I appreciate that, man. It means a lot. And I've been admiring your work for a long time as well. So it's nice to finally be able to sit down and talk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. And yeah. hopefully we can connect for a drink soon. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. And get down to the conference. So there's going to be another one coming up. Yeah, we're hoping to, to run another one in 2023. So we've we've run two successful now, so one in 21 and 22. And then uh, we've already started to kind of talk a little bit about what our future plans are for next year. So I just wanted to kind of thank everybody that came out and contributed to the conference and everybody that was involved with kind of making it happen. It's obviously a pretty big endeavor and there was a lot of moving pieces and parts like right from coordinating facilities and setting up the towers for the different evolutions and stuff through the day and a lot of key players that helped out with that and we're super grateful to have such amazing people kind of helping out with these type of events and it takes everybody's effort to make these things a success and without everybody's effort we just it wouldn't have been as successful as it has been and hopefully moving forward we can continue on and hopefully bring on some some more people too that are eager and wanting to uh, help out and contribute and grow what we've kind of started yeah absolutely we might even try to take it down your way a little closer possibly awesome yeah i couldn't make it down this year just because of scheduling but it's in my calendar for next year as soon as i see the date i'll throw it in awesome yeah we'll definitely keep you in mind too for any opportunities for classes and things too so 